Hey, welcome to AUSU Open Mic. Uh, we are at the Athabasca University Students Union, serving students from coast to coast to coast and all around the world. My name is Duncan Wotasek. I'm your governance and advocacy coordinator, and I'm joined by two guests. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. So I'm Natasha Donahue. I'm your vice president, uh, external and student affairs, and I'm also a Métis individual. Hi, my name is Alicia Gordon. I am an Indigenous student as well. I was born and raised here in Alberta. Um, I am an AU student, but I also am a student at the University of Calgary, uh, where I serve also on the Students' Union as uh, Vice President Student Life. So in my role, I get to do a lot of great things. Um, and something I'm really excited to talk about today is some of the Indigenous initiatives that are happening on our campuses. Cool. Cool. Um, there was a poll released today. I uh, talked to, to different Canadians about who they thought had too little and too much influence in our political life. And Indigenous peoples were by far the ones that were recognized as having too little impact on Canadian politics. I don't know if that's a surprise to some people, but it might be a surprise to others. But what do you guys think? Do you think Indigenous peoples in Canada have enough say? And is there anything we can do to, to boost their voice? Wow, that's such a great question. I'm really interested in that. That's where a lot of my research is in, actually, mm -hmm. specifically that question. Uh, how do we get more Indigenous voices into Canadian politics? I definitely agree, would agree with that survey that uh, their voices uh, currently are not, um, while they are mighty, they're not being upheld and mm -hmm. they're not being spotlighted. Uh, so I really agree with that. I think there's so many things that we can do as individuals, I feel like Canada definitely needs a culture shift mm -hmm. uh, first and foremost. But I think also as individuals, and especially as Indigenous students, being role models and kind of setting that way. What do you think, Natasha? Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I also think, like, uh, to kind of piggyback a little bit on what you said, um, the voices are mighty and they're there. And, and they're saying things are important, but um, the people who have the power to actually take action on what is being said are not moving forward with that action. So I've been hearing a lot of discussion and um, talking about um, Indigenous issues and some of the ways we can um, break through these issues and move forward with conciliation. But um, if that action isn't actually taking place, then we can talk about this all day long and mm -hmm. nothing will actually happen. So it's almost like lip, it's just like lip service, right? Yeah. I really like the phrase, uh, I don't want reconciliation, I want re reconciliation. Mm. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. And I think that kind of sums up a lot of uh, what needs to be done here uh, in this country, in this province, but also on our campuses. Yeah, absolutely. It, it permeates every aspect of society. Mm -hmm. Thinking about our campuses, I know a, a big struggle we have at the Students' Union here, and I, this is probably a struggle at every Students' Union, is, is how do we translate the fact that our executives and your representatives are going to a lot of meetings and a lot of meetings where their voices might already be marginalized, but it also they're really boring. <laughs> Tell me about indigenous voices within the academy. How, what are indigenous voices on campus? Where, where are those gaps that, that they're not being heard? And is there any good, good practices out there in, in Canada about empowering those voices on campus? From our experience, so so Alicia and I were uh, fortunate enough to be able to attend a an inaugural conference this year, mm -hmm. hosted by the Canadian Alliance of Student Associations, where a group of Indigenous student reps from across Canada were able to come together and have some discussions and share their um, experiences. So I was able to learn from that that um, it varies very widely mm. across the country, and it's like all of the different experiences that I heard. Like there were a lot of 
themes that you can pull from from what was said but um it's just it just really depends on the level of um like how much um like effort or motivation or uh, work that the people like I said who are in power want to put into facilitating those relationships and growing them so that indigenous peoples have more influence in the academy and what is happening in the university Um, if I was going to speak for AU specifically I would say it's hard to gauge it's extremely um, isolating to be an AU student full-time um, you don't get to actually see anybody else. Uh, you have to find ways to reach out to people. It doesn't necessarily come to you. Um, the community is something you have to go after yourself rather than having it be around you just by virtue of being in the institution. Um, and I would say, like, just from as a student exec who's participated in meetings at the academy um, or with the administration, they're definitely receptive to listening to the Indigenous point of view and the ind- and the issues that are brought up about Indigenous students. Um, but that is coming from my own personal experience. Mm. Being an Indigenous student, being able to bring up those, those concerns and issues and giving it a perspective. Um, and if that individual is not at the table, then that doesn't necessarily happen. So, um, yeah, I guess it's it's hard to have an influence in the academy when... There, there aren't really any students who you can draw from who are Indigenous who can share their experiences with the Academy. So that's that's my experience at AU, uh, personally. Mm-hmm. What, what would you, you? S- what, what would you say at the University of Calgary? Yeah, the University of Calgary is uh, it's interesting. Um, compared to other schools, we do have quite a small Indigenous student population, mm-hmm. uh, percentage-wise. Uh, but our university has committed to a few things. They have adopted an Indigenous strategy mm-hmm. um, and uh, recently created a position of the Vice Provost of Indigenous Engagement, uh, which means we have an Indigenous person working on Indigenous ga- engagement uh, on the executive leadership team, which I think is a huge win. That's and awesome. Yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. really great. But I think what students need is some of that more grassroots, on-the-ground work. Like, even if the university is committing in a high level uh to move forward at the campus a certain way what does that mean for students and what other changes going to be when you see there and i think uh there's so many interesting conversations about indigenous uh peoples and indigenous voices in academia um and i would say i i don't want to say that uh it has been a trend but i feel like since i've gotten on campus since i've become a post-secondary student i've definitely seen the trend Um, move forward and um, it's also about like value valuing those voices a lot of I don't know in my experience at UCalgary a lot of indigenous faculty are um, stuck on committees all day Mm. they rarely teach and they're expected to be the indigenous voice for everything that's going on in their Mm -hmm. faculty Um, and you go to faculties in engineering when there's not that many indigenous women in engineering and therefore just due to their identity they're going to be stuck in committee work all day and they're demanded to make choices on behalf of all indigenous students all indigenous faculty um so i think we're in an interesting thing where we have to kind of shift uh yes valuing indigenous voices but also valuing the work that they do on campus yeah i think that's a really important point that you brought up and um something that maybe people don't they're not aware of or they aren't exposed to is that um, it's it's really nice to be inclusive to Indigenous voices, but you shouldn't expect those people to to do all of the the footwork for mm-hmm. everything and and to 
um, come up with all of the recommendations or, you know, review things to add their own voice to it. Um, what, what indigenous people are saying should be taken um, into account when developing anything, but the, the indigenous people shouldn't be the ones who are having to sacrifice their time or anything like that yeah. to, to actually do that work. I agree. Yeah. I hear you. You know, when I think about education in Canada, and, and it, it is not entirely a positive story, obviously, in Canada, especially as it relates to our indigenous peoples, and we think of our university, and well, at AU, our university is a wonderful, magical place, but it is also a pretty colonial place. Mm-hmm. Universities are set up and, and structured in a way that's pretty colonial. How do we break that down and, and create an environment that transcends and is more welcoming? That's a really hard question to answer. The, the basis of the Canadian government is built upon a colonial system, right? Mm-hmm. So like even the work we do, the governance work we do based on Robert's Rules of Orders, mm-hmm. it's the same system. Um, and it's inherent. So like in order to dismantle that, you, you really have to become innovative and want, be willing to step outside the box. And I think m- the number one thing that you can guarantee um, when moving forward with these conciliatory um, actions is that it's going to be messy. Mm-hmm. And there isn't really an easy way to define it or or prescribe it or um, create a framework around it. Like it's it's breaking down cultural barriers first and foremost and allowing people to have relationships where um, their their biases are not interfering with progress. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. It'll be messy. It'll be complicated. But I think um, there's two kind of different stories that need to be told. A kind of decolonizing and making ways for Indigenous ways of knowing and learning Mm -hmm. in our academia. But there's also the second story, which is to tell Indigenous youth that this isn't their only option and to validate the fact that university is not the end-all be-all of learning Mm. Mm -hmm. and there's amazing first of all indigenous-led post-secondary institutions uh, where they will value um, any uh, your indigenous ways of knowing and being Uh, but also there's so many great land-based learning opportunities that exist in our country so I think there's definitely two stories and to say that um you know I personally feel like I from the outside generally succeeded within a colonial academia (laughs) (laughs) um but it's been tough and it has been messy and it has been complicated but that was the journey I wanted to go on and Mm. that I needed to go on but that's not for everyone that's not for our whole community yeah, I really like that um, message, and I relate to what you said as well, that um, I've been generally successful in this structure. Um, I would I would argue, though, that I haven't, mm-hmm. because I've had to have so many accommodations yeah. that um, I, I'm, it's almost like it makes you feel like you're failing in a way, but it's also kind of um, a testimony to the fact that just because it's a system created by the West doesn't mean that it's a perfect system and it doesn't mean that it shouldn't um, be scrutinized. And uh, especially when you're in a situation where a country has been colonized and the indigenous peoples are trying to um, retake what is rightfully theirs Mm -hmm. in terms of having the voice and having their culture and having their, their human rights that have been denied for so long okay you both have alluded to some of the barriers that might exist Mm -hmm. for indigenous students and make no mistake we also recognize that 
intersectionality comes at play if you mm -hmm. if you have barriers in one area of your life that can be compounded by others but and at Athabasca University obviously there is no such thing as a typical student so to put you both on the spot and say tell me stereotypically or typically what they are but I'm going to do it anyway. What are the barriers that some Indigenous students face to getting a traditional or even a non-traditional post-secondary education? Mm -hmm. mm, the list goes on. I feel like, first of all, not even having um, recognized high school education mm. in communities. I know that's just a huge problem off the bat if a university doesn't even recognize your high school education as being valid yeah um there's that off of the bat mm -hmm. that means that if you did want to be that traditional student that went from high school you're 18 years old you're going to go to university you're going to have to move outside your community yeah. mm -hmm. and how are you going to ask a 14 or 15 year old to do that absolutely and I think that kind of breeds a sense of like, this is impossible mm -hmm. because um, I was going to bring up the Northern community aspect. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of individuals who live in communities where they can't even uh, leave their community unless they use a plane or a winter road. And um, for those individuals going to post-secondary can seem like completely out of reach. Yeah. So um, I would also bring up like intergenerational abuse, lateral violence. Um, those all throw down barriers in front of people where it makes you question your ability and your and your confidence level in succeeding. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that was the interesting thing uh, that came out of this conference. I felt like a lot of the students went in knowing this. Mm. I think it might have been a surprise to the non-Indigenous mm -hmm. students. stuff. Just about how, again, going back to how messy these issues are. And at one point in the conference, I... Uh, I almost chuckled to myself because I realized some of the problems we would want to solve, uh, we would need to completely dismantle the Indian Act yes. and things like that. And, you know, that does not allow for an easy uh, solution to some of these problems as well. It's just, uh, as Natasha alluded to, so many intergenerational uh, trauma and um, lateral violence in our own communities that create barriers. Um, there's so much to touch up on upon. And then we get to the fact, when, once you get to university, how is your experience when you get there? And what barriers right. do you face once you actually get, uh, you're either taking a course, either you're in your home community or you moved away and you're in a physical campus. Like, what does that look like? And then even going beyond that, like you're saying, the University of Calgary has a relatively small indigenous student mm -hmm. population. Well, consider that a lot of and I know you've considered this Alicia and I'm sure Duncan you probably thought about this maybe 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 not. I don't <laughs> know who knows but um like just consider the fact that all of those students who are currently there probably represent more than one student who mm -hmm. wishes that they were there who mm -hmm. are indigenous and just could not make it because the system is set up so that um, actually c overcoming these barriers and like the, the things that Alicia and I brought up are like very, they're just like a drop in the bucket, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a huge issue. So all of those really pile up and, you know, only a select few can overcome them. And it's really unfortunate that um, those voices are the only ones that are um, being allowed in those spaces. Yeah. I know I've talked to plenty of uh, politicians and decision makers as well as the general public about indigenous issues as it relates to post-secondary. There's this myth that's out there that post-secondary education is free for indigenous <laughs> students. Right. I hear it all the time. And dear listener, I can tell you it is not true. But I'm going to turn it over <laughs> to my experts here. Is it true? Why is there that perception? And what is the reality for, for financial um, barriers for, for indigenous students? 
Well, I think it's first important to um, just be open and honest about where that myth comes from. Um, first of all, I would say uh, the post-secondary student support program uh, has been an aspect that really creates that myth, you mm-hmm. would say. Yep. Um, and this allows status Indians, as defined by the government and Inuit students, to uh, apply for funding uh, for the post-secondary uh, through the federal government. But I also think it should be said that um, this was uh, something that was signed in many of the treaties. Yeah. Um, and this is a treaty right that people hold. And um, I know s- some non-Indigenous people... Um, I don't know, they cringe when you talk about the rights that you might have as an Indigenous mm-hmm. person. Right. But I like to go back and say, well, uh, how are you benefiting from this treaty relationship? And not to vilify them, but, mm-hmm. you yep. know, um, if um, if you're working, living, um, going to school, doing everything on this land, you have benefited from the treaty as well. Um, so I believe the federal government upholding that um, is incredibly important as everybody in Canada benefits from it one way or the other. Uh, but it's also uh, important to note that there's a huge backlog with that program. Right. Mm-hmm. So many students who, are, that is their treaty right, are, are not getting access to that program. Uh, another way I personally think this can uh, myth kind of comes along is um, some people do get support from their community and mm-hmm, that can't mm-hmm. be denied uh, but to get support from your community your community would have to be financially uh, stable enough to support you as a post-secondary uh, student yeah and as a Métis person I can tell you that I don't have access mm-hmm. to any free education I would have to go through um, a pretty intensive grant process to get um, like one year of my education covered, yeah. which I have gone through and was denied because there's students coming into post-secondary who um, need that money more mm. so they can actually get their foot into the door. So it's not like this is like a um, infinite source of revenue or like income for indigenous uh-huh. students. Um, the amount of awards I've received for um, from indigenous bursaries is probably I would I think it's 3,500 in total in the last seven years, mm-hmm. wow. and I hit my debt ceiling for student financial aid at 75,000. So I can tell you from personal experience that is not the case. And these myths create a culture where it uh, it makes assumptions that indigenous students don't need financial assistance or have financial security going through post-secondary education, Mm. uh, which I think Natasha brought up some really great points. Uh, I also, despite um, having status, never accessed, uh, Mm -hmm. was able to access the post-secondary student support program through the federal government. Like there's even sometimes the family dynamics, right? Exactly. And there's a with the programs that are put in place it does make it quite exclusive so when that myth comes out it just it doesn't incentivize people to feel like they need to um, create new scholarships or resources for indigenous students because they're like yeah oh they should be good they get everything paid for (laughs) right and that is just so far from the truth Mm -hmm. yeah indigenous individuals on campus are there supports directly for them i'm thinking of things like mental health um, we have some great supports on campus. I mean, um, it could always be improved. I think every campus community mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, can say that. But um, for us, we have some great uh, directives. The University of Calgary, we have a great program called Quality Money, uh, which is a tuition rebate program that's been going on for about 16 years. Mm-hmm. And the Students' Union actually gets to choose uh, which projects are funded um, through this tuition rebate. Cool. And it equals out to about $1.7 million dollars. 
dollars so that's a lot of projects that get really great funding mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of programs that have actually come through that so it's been uh, students been have had the choice to choose that these projects are worthwhile and some of that has included um, an indigenous uh, leadership program mm-hmm. um, and included indigenous uh, training and trauma-informed training for our counselors on campus that have an indigenous lens to it uh yeah and it's also been able to fund an indigenous student support advisor that uh works directly with indigenous students so Mm -hmm. there's some really really great uh, mental health um initiatives happening at the university of calgary but i would definitely say all thanks to quality money (laughs) (laughs) that's a really cool uh program i like that idea um for AU, I, I, you know, I really can't say we, we do have anything mm. directed at Indigenous students. And um, um, there's a lot of layers as to I, why I think that mm. might be. Um, but it, the, the fact is that there isn't really anything. We do have an Indigenous center. Um, we have an el- access to an elder. Um, but that's kind of where it ends. I know there is some support, mm-hmm. but obviously, like, mental health can go, you know, into pretty... Uh, deep territory yeah. and and sometimes the the level of support you can get from administrative individuals is just not enough um so this is something i'd be i'm really interested in in trying to work on and not just at au but i think this is a trend that we heard um where there is a really a lack of, mm-hmm. of mental health uh support for indigenous students across canada and um um it's you know it, it does need to be approached differently yeah. because we you are um, asking indigenous individuals to exist in a colonial system and and their mental health needs are just not being met within that mm. system so yeah i think i think one way our campus could do better uh would be that more trauma-informed lens and just understanding yeah. um even the idea of self-care mm-hmm. i i kind of laugh about just because uh a lot of our culture and our teachings are based in community. So you really can't have self-care if your community is not healthy. Mm. Right. You know, when I think about, you guys mentioned a lot about the barriers that Indigenous students can face or do face as they're going through their studies. Uh, at Athabasca, we think a great deal about breaking down barriers, whether it's your mm-hmm. academic barriers or financial barriers or geographic barriers especially. Is there any... Is there an intersection there of distance education helping Indigenous students by their very nature? And is there any unique challenges that distance education might face when when dealing out education to Indigenous learners? Yes, I think uh, to both questions. Yeah. Um, so in terms of um, support that distance education can provide or um, maybe uh, a different lens or a different perspective mm-hmm. that students can take rather than sitting in a brick and mortar institution is that they don't have to leave their community. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of indigenous people can stay in the community that they grew up in and around mm-hmm. the people that they know in their support network. Um, they don't have to worry about paying a lot of money to move and then having to kind of um, adapt to this new environment. Uh, another pro I guess you could call it is that at AU anyways you don't need a high school diploma to um, apply so Mm -hmm. you only have to be 16 years old so if you haven't graduated from high school then um, that is not a barrier to going to Athabasca University which Mm -hmm. which I think is amazing but I think there is a little bit of a challenge there as well which is that um, just like my own self having learning disabilities like dyslexia and ADD and trying to navigate through coursework that is really heavy on reading and Mm. um like light on hands-on and light on like lectures and and listening and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um like that's a personal challenge for myself but I would also 
uh, venture to say that individuals who haven't graduated from high school probably would also find a challenge in some of that coursework. So if they don't have access to individuals around them or if they don't um, know the avenues to reach out to the appropriate people at the institution or um, how to actually find that support, then that can maybe pose a barrier itself. Mm. Um, but I would say that if you can push through that that initial barrier, then the distance education can do leaps and bounds for um, someone's own uh, perception of success. And what would you say? I mean, you've attended classes at both a traditional mm-hmm. brick and mortar institution as well as doing distance education. Do you see a role there for distance education in indigenous communities? Very much so. Whether you are indigenous living in your traditional community or mm-hmm. you may live in an urban or rural center, I definitely um, I think it goes back to that intersectionality we were talking about. Right. Uh, what do we know about indigenous students? Statistically, they're parents a lot mm-hmm. of the time right. uh they may be working things mm-hmm. like this that really allows distance learning to be an amazing option for them i work on my campus i don't think it could have been easier for me to take a course on my campus i would have had to walk 10 minutes but um au really came in um with all the external commitments i have that knowing i just don't have work i have familial commitments um community mm-hmm. commitments and things like that um that even though it might seem that uh, the regular brick and mortar classes um, might have been a little bit more accessible for me, uh, there was still that need for distance learning considering all the other commitments I have, um, as well as kind of that intersectionality. Yeah. There is no easy solution. This is messy. What are the first steps to making Canada's post-secondary system more more accessible? Are there some are there some places where where we are advocating for for the start to occur? I think one of the biggest things we could do is look at the the PSSP program maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um that's the the program that we were talking about earlier that helps fund ind- indigenous mm-hmm. students. Um because we did identify at that conference um many barriers um through that program itself to accessing post secondary. Um but like that's just the first thing that jumps into my mind. I don't know if that's where to start or if it's one of the places to start yeah yeah i think there's a lot of building blocks and that's definitely one of them mm-hmm. i i truly believe it all starts from um going back to our communities mm-hmm. uh let's take a five-year-old indigenous kid living in the indigenous community mm-hmm. what kind of education are they getting starting then mm-hmm. all the way until yeah. they are an adult um they're so that's such a it's such a like because now I'm thinking about what you're saying and it's making me even go deeper than that mm-hmm. right it's like okay yes I agree because I've actually been in schools in indigenous communities done a lot of outreach in a lot of different schools across the province um, on reservations and I can tell you firsthand there's a huge variety in the quality yeah and um, I have come away from some of those situations just feeling defeated like I wish I could do more. Um, and then that makes me realize that society is just like, there's so many things that Mm -hmm. we need to fix to help, um, indigenous individuals, uh, be successful and have meaningful, uh, lives that they, they deem meaningful. Yeah. You brought up a really good point though. There is 
a variety of um, experiences Indigenous peoples are going to face. There's, as you mentioned, a variety of even school conditions when you go on reserves across Alberta or across the country. Um, and I think a positive thing is we can look to the people who, the schools that are being successful on reserves, mm-hmm. the people who are succeeding in academia and post-secondary um, institutions across this province, and just looking towards Indigenous voices who are getting it right and moving that needle forward and yeah. um, taking the action yes and yeah. use them as role models i think that's super yeah. important i think the biggest message i would want to give through this well any any messaging that i give on this topic is um the people in power need to be the one who push this forward because yeah. indigenous people can cannot be expected to carry this burden um it's it's something that the people who built the institution need to to actually do to yeah. dismantle it. Now we're going to turn it a little bit lighter. Yay. We're going to ask you a series of questions, our, our rapid-fire questions, which, of course, we didn't prepare them. So they're literally going to be whatever I think of off the top of my yeah. head. <laughs> and I won't think of enough, and Natasha will supplement. Natasha's had to do this multiple times. <laughs> so she doesn't have to do it at all. Everybody already knows her favorite movie is A Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> we laugh. But it's true. She You'll find given that. <laughs> yeah, she's given that answer more than <laughs> once on the podcast. Three times now, I think. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? Uh, I think my favorite movie is a tie between Clueless and Scream. That's awesome. Yeah. Classic. I feel like Clueless is just such a classic movie, as you said. But it's, I don't want to say it's mindless because I it's don't not. feel like I'm, but it's easy watching. You can watch yeah. it many times and get something from you it. You know, it's so funny you say that because when I was a kid, I loved Clue. I still love Clues. Mm. I loved it because I thought that it was like the representation of what it meant to be a young woman, yes. I guess. Right. Cause it was like everywhere. It was mainstream. And, and now when I actually just watched it like last year, I think as an adult and you realize like, this is like actually a really good coming of age story where somebody is like actually learning a lot about themselves and, you know, um, fixing mistakes that they're yes. making and and you know becoming a, a better or, or growing right as a person and it's like wow like maybe it isn't as meaningless as people think it is no i think that i'm sorry to get <laughs> off of this rapid question but the thing about Cher is she looks so perfect on the outside and the whole yeah. movie is kind of based on how she's still working on herself on the inside. And one of my favorite scenes is when she's going to uh, go negotiate with all of her teachers to get her grades up. Yeah. And I was just like, looking back on that as an adult, I'm like, what a power move to right. just like be like, no, this is what I deserve. She came with some concrete yeah. evidence. She was ready. She was a strong role model. Yes. Yeah. I love her. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Um... I am wearing so much blue just to rep uh, the students' <laughs> union at UCalgary, yeah. but I'm actually a pink person. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Will Jeff Marshall listen to this podcast? I will make Jeff Marshall listen <laughs> to this podcast. Hello, I'm Jeff not Marshall. I'm sure if Jeff knows what a podcast is. <laughs> I'm worried that you're right, but, but hey, Jeff, it's Duncan. Where's your ones. favorite place to travel? You know, I haven't traveled that much uh, before. And this whole, this 2019 has kind of been my travel year, but it's kind of sad compared to other people's traveling experience. So I went to Vancouver for the first time this summer. Nice. It's gorgeous. It was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. 
And of course, as we mentioned before, we went to a conference, which was in Ottawa, and that yeah. was my first time there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did know that. Did you ever get to go to the museum and stuff like that? Um, I did. Oh, but I should have taken the whole day. Yeah, which you recommended, yeah. but I just didn't have it's time okay. for it. Yeah. Um, You'll be back. Yeah, I have to go <laughs> back for sure. Um, so those were the two places I visited. Well, you you got That's to come awesome. here to Edmonton. Oh, true. Yeah. yeah. And for cause counterparts, you have also had to go to Lethbridge. Yes, that I, was I super actually exciting. <laughs> I actually love Lethbridge. It's a beautiful city, but I don't like the wind. Um, no. But I love traveling Alberta. I think Alberta's got so many beautiful places to visit and amazing, um, cool places to see mm-hmm. and experience. Yeah, it's such like a wide a variety, though. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you've got like the Canadian Shield, the Rockies, the Foothills, the Prairies. I can go on because I did a project about this. So. <laughs> Do you have any pets? I do. I have a cat. She's her name is Oreo. What does Oreo do? Uh, Oreo just chills all day. She's yep. pretty chill. Um, she we kind of trained her like a dog. Ooh. So she doesn't really act like a cat very much. So I like her though. She's pretty chill. <laughs> What's awesome. the most dog thing she does? Uh, plays catch or fetch. Ooh. Love it. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a good feat. Yes. High five. Thank you. Definitely. Oh, that was crisp. (laughs) (laughs) I know neither of my cats are very dog-like, although they're now teaching our dog how to be more cat-like. Yeah. That's hilarious. So so I have two older cats, and then we have a a brand new puppy, and so the cats are teaching the puppy, no, just sleep a lot. That's all we have to do. (laughs) However, the puppy wants to play because she's a puppy. So she she has learned that the cats are sharp, so instead of approaching them (laughs) face first, she approaches them Oh, that's so funny. So so she'll she'll see them and then she'll turn around and she'll she'll put her head back and she'll approach butt first. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Because because cats are sharp. Yes, they are. I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for having me. Of course. My first podcast. Yay. (laughs) You did great. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. So that's AUSU Open Mic. We're heading out. See you guys later. Bye, everyone. Bye.